0: I'm Lexi, and this is Hannah, and we're Wild About Conservation. This
1: is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests, and this season's focus is on all things ocean. In this episode, we chat with
0: Tara about the wonderful world of seaweeds. We learnt that seaweed can be found along the coastlines, but also in more products than we ever dreamed. We also spoke to her about how she came to be a volunteer and community engagement manager for MCS for the whole of Scotland
1: keep listening to hear more about how you can get involved in collecting data on seaweed the beauty of kelp forests and everything that seaweed is good for both in the environment but also out of it we hope you enjoy listening to this podcast please remember to leave a review get in touch on our socials and if you would like to help support us as creators we do have a patreon you can check out all of the links in the show notes on our website and the description enjoy the episode Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. So firstly, could you please introduce your name and your pronouns and just tell us where you're based?
2: Yeah, so I'm Tara. I refer to myself as she or her. I'm based in Scotland, um, quite far from the sea, weirdly, given the job I do, but um, in Stirling, uh, so I can get to the sea relatively easily wherever I go.
1: Amazing and beautiful Scotland, always good. And you've definitely led in really well there, Tara. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you're here to chat to us today and where you work?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I work for a charity called the Marine Conservation Society. I'm here to talk to you a bit about seaweeds and hopefully get some folk a little bit more knowledgeable, a little bit more interested in seaweeds. Um, With the big caveat that Ten years ago, I reckon I would have definitely not taken a second glance at seaweeds, so I am a convert, so I hope to share some of that with you.
0: That sounds amazing, and I can't wait to learn more about seaweeds myself um but before we take a splash into all things seaweeds, we do have a short game that we like to play with our guests, so it's a really fun quick fire round of a couple of questions to keep you on your toes and hopefully get you a little bit more comfortable chatting to us online. So are you happy to play? Yeah. Cool. So firstly, if you could be any animal, what would it be?
2: Um, I think I'd be an otter because I always feel happy when I see otters and obviously they hang out near water, which is where I feel like I'm happiest. So yeah, an otter.
0: That is a lovely answer. Um, Slightly different tack. What is something that you're grateful for today?
2: I'm as I'm talking to you right now I'm looking out on my garden and I'm really grateful for my garden because I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk at the moment and I can see all of the wild flowers I can see our pond that we dug only a few months ago and I find it so exciting just geeking out and seeing what's living in it every day there seems to be something new and um, so yeah that's something I'm totally grateful for
0: that sounds so exciting. I love it. I love when some part of your own world changes and you can notice that. Anyway, last one from me. Um what is something that you love that has not a lot or nothing to do with conservation?
2: Oh, <laughs> food. Absolutely love the food. <laughs> um yeah, I think I think in the height of all the kind of covid lockdown and stuff last year. Um, I just went on all these food adventures I just felt like I was travelling around the world through food and I absolutely love that uh, so yeah I guess that doesn't have much to do with conservation I agree but it's
0: a
1: wonderful way to experience cultures like you say I'm a bit of a foodie myself
2: mm-hmm.
1: last week uh, I introduced Tara and a friend of ours to mochi which is a rice based sweet that's so Japanese um, and our friend compared it to eating a jellyfish <laughs>
2: And then she found a jellyfish on the beach.
1: (laughs) Finally, every episode, Tara, we ask our guests how they get wild about conservation. So how do you get wild?
2: So I think as long as I remember, um, I've really enjoyed kind of noticing the small details of nature. Um, So it could be something as simple as, I don't know, dandelions pushing up in a pavement or like the massive things you know the really exciting things where you just have this incredible day and you see a, a species that you've never seen before you know and everything in between and I kind of, for me, it's noticing those details that gives me hope. I love sharing that with people. So um, as uh, as you um, know, part of my job is teaching children. Um, so I really enjoy the opportunity to kind of help to open people's eyes to some of those experiences, to notice nature. Um, but also with adults as well. I'm quite a keen amateur photographer, so I kind of enjoy... Finding those details and showing them to people. Um, so, yeah, that gives me a lot of hope. And I think it helps me to feel wild about conservation and to feel really positive, even when sometimes things can feel overwhelming.
0: That sounds amazing. And I think you're right, it is that capturing and being able to explain that awe that you Mm. see for yourself. And it takes a practice eye to be able to appreciate the the dandelion pushing through the urban areas in which we live, or even to have the patience to sit there and whale watch for three hours. I think (laughs) having people like yourself that are communicators in that way really, really helps to ensure that not everybody that has the patience to can also experience that mindfulness that comes along with the wild spaces that we have in our world. But I loved your answer. I adored it Um, but now to carry on with the podcast and learn a little bit more about you so I'd love you to tell us what got you into conservation if you can pinpoint a moment
2: so I think for like a lot of people who work in conservation who were kind of drawn to this area all of my kind of earliest childhood memories are around nature like, I just remember being really happy in nature, whether that was kind of climbing trees or exploring my parents' garden or going to the beach. Like, I have a lot of very happy memories of being on the beach and swimming in the sea. Um, so I think that's kind of where my passion for nature and nature conservation was ignited. And then as I got older, I got involved in kind of volunteering for different conservation charities. Um, I was very lucky in my teens, I volunteered on Skoma Island off the Welsh coast um, a few times. And it was just so exciting to be, you know, for the last boat to leave and to be left on the island with a few people who were kind of privileged to stay there with all the puffins and all the Manx shearwaters and the seals and, you know, whatever time of year it was and I think it just made me think yeah this is what I want to do you know I want to work in something where I'm protecting this it means so much to me and I could see how important it was for other people and yeah I think I think that's kind of where it all started essentially it's a love of nature uh, and that's just what fuels me in conservation.
1: And just picking up on that Tara because you're speaking about these wonderful seabirds have you always kind of from that moment has it always been marine conservation and seabirds or was there something else first?
2: Yeah. Um I think I think I've always loved seabirds, but actually I kind of I have a love of all <laughs> everything, every living thing to be honest, I can get excited about. I think whenever I learn the story of of an animal or a plant or a fungi's life cycle, I just find it fascinating. I think there's fascinating stories everywhere. Um I think seabirds is kind of where I started out because I had those opportunities uh, on Skomer Island when I was growing up, and just to be surrounded by thousands and thousands of seabirds is pretty mind blowing. And if you've, you know, if any of the listeners haven't had the opportunity, I would recommend going. You know, in the middle of the summer, being surrounded by seabirds—it's a mind blowing experience. Absolutely, like one of my best wildlife experiences ever has been being surrounded by puffins or Manx shearwaters in the middle of the night. Um, I've definitely kind of gone in different directions. I think my love of seabirds got me interested in migration. So for a while, I was really focused on migratory birds, but land birds rather than seabirds. So yeah, I definitely started um, my, I guess my passion for conservation started through seabirds, but then it kind of moved in different directions. So I've kind of been really committed to islands and also to my migration. I guess they've been my different topics. Um, So to the extent that my first kind of proper proper job out of university was in Mauritius, working on a few little offshore islands there. Uh and the birds there are birds that are found nowhere else on the planet, so they're endemic to these little little tiny pockets of the Indian Ocean. And that was really exciting. I find I find islands quite exciting in that respect, because you've got these kind of weird species. Um I, I love a weird species. Um, but then also migration. So I was working for quite a few years for the RSPB looking after a species called turtle doves. So they they barely cross the sea, you know, they're very much a land bird. But I think, again, that theme of migration, I just find fascinating, the idea that animals can live in all these different spaces and make these big journeys. So yeah, there's been a few different themes for me, and I I imagine there'll be lots more themes in future as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I like when we hear about our guests and what got them primarily into conservation and how that does in itself migrate and become an entire journey, so what was your route into the marine conservation societies? You've mentioned islands, you've mentioned migration. Yeah. <laughs> Has it always been marine e? Then have you always stuck to that, and then that's what's led you? Or
2: um, not really? I think I moved away from the marine environment. Um, I was working; it was a good five years or so when I was at RSPB, where I didn't really do anything to do with the sea. But I think the sea had always been kind of one of my first loves, really. And so I guess I found myself increasingly drawn back to it. And whilst whilst working in land-based conservation roles, I found myself volunteering more and more in different marine sort of roles. Mm-hmm. So there were some really amazing citizen or community science projects that I got involved with, Um all about learning learning about the rocky shore learning what was there uh, and really for me that was where I kind of thought yeah this is this is where my heart really is um so it was a great opportunity for me to kind of learn some new stuff as a volunteer and then also get, get some of those skills get some of that knowledge so I could then move back into that marine environment which I guess certainly for the time being is absolutely where I want to be.
1: And that's so great I think you just painting such a lovely picture there and kind of you've already touched on bits and pieces of what it is that you do um in your job could you just give us a quick overview because that will lead us nicely I think into our next few questions of yeah what what your job actually is because there's lots of different things I know um about (laughs) what you do at the Marine Conservation Society
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my job title is Volunteer and Community Engagement Manager. Um, I cover the whole of Scotland, which I love because I absolutely love living in Scotland, traveling around Scotland and working with communities all over the country. So my role is very public facing. So I work with, I work a lot with children. So teaching children um, about the sea to increase their ocean literacy. So they understand how important the oceans are and all these important roles the oceans play for us. I work a lot with adults to help them to to do the same really, to understand more about our ocean, to understand better about how to protect it, but also to work together. So hopefully collectively as a network, we can all we can all kind of make a big difference. You know, a lot of us see things like plastic pollution on our beaches and it can feel it can feel overwhelming to see the scale of these problems or to see it on, on the news. So I feel like my role is partly helping people to work together so that collectively they really can make a difference. So in a a nutshell, that's what we do.
0: I love that. And I think the key word that was running through my mind as you were answering that question is facilitation. I -hmm. think all of us have the ability to be able to do great things, but sometimes we just need to be shown the way. And that I think that's what came across to me in your answer is that you're just a wonderful guide um, (laughs) as well as educator on this journey. What do you most enjoy about the public engagement side of your role?
2: I love those moments where you can see that you've connected with somebody, that something's made sense, whether it's a, whether it's some geeky biology concept that I've been, you know, raving about, I'm really excited about, um, or somebody, like I was saying earlier, you feel like you've opened somebody's eyes to really appreciate nature in a way they hadn't done before. Um, so that's definitely the kind of softer side of, of, of what, what motivates me. But what I also absolutely love is the feeling of, of connecting people because I really believe in the power of communities and individuals working together to mm-hmm. to have a collective voice. So I think that's something that, that really motivates me and that I feel I feel makes my job very worthwhile. I
1: really love that because, yeah, I think you, I mean, that's the ethos of our whole podcast really <laughs> is trying to connect people get people engaged and excited where they share that on because I think that is, that's a route of conservation and a really big route of yeah. conservation as well. Um so we've really touched on what you do, um, but it'd be great because one of the things we'd like to give to our listeners is just an idea of where our guests have come from, how they got here. So um, <laughs> I know quite a lot about where you came from, Sarah, but could you give us an overview of your university career? Um, you've already touched on a few different jobs. Um, so yeah, just kind of how you got here.
2: Yeah, definitely. So see so yeah, I guess from from a childhood and certainly teenage years, where I really knew that I was passionate about conservation and wanted to make a big difference in this area um I swerved quite a lot in terms of where I wanted to go for a while. I thought I wanted to be a science journalist because I knew that science communication was really important to me, and I guess I recognized the importance of that um and then I had a complete swerve away from pursuing the kind of journalism side and decided instead I would follow the science so yeah I did fairly standard route two biology degrees so one at Bristol and then a master's at Oxford and whenever I had the opportunity I took all of the modules about ecology conservation marine you know all of those kinds of themes and and for any practical projects that's why I always kind of drifted towards Um, But around my academic studies, I did as much hands-on kind of ecology or conservation stuff as I could as well. So whenever I, in the holidays, I would always be, I'd always be the one who was off kind of to some island volunteering, whether that was Scoma in Wales or um, various different places, really. a friend of mine, one of my very closest friends, Serene, and I had the opportunity, we got a little bit of funding to be able to go to Fair Isle, way up in the north, kind of not far south of Shetland. And that was when we were doing our undergraduate degrees. And it was just just quite an adventure getting there. Um, it took a few days from Bristol where we were studying. And... It was just such an exciting opportunity and adventure for us to go and, and just meet these people whose whole world was looking after birds, um, and especially kind of the seabirds that you could see there. And we didn't actually see um, orca or killer whales whilst we were there, but actually sitting on the clifftops with people who were sort of telling us, you know we've had we've had these amazing animals swimming just below us where we're sitting right now just really again it kind of just continued to fuel that excitement for me about conservation especially marine conservation yeah and then I think um after my degree so I I went to Mauritius um amazing volunteering I would recommend it to anyone the Mauritian, Mauritian Wildlife Foundation do some incredible conservation work I mean they really have brought species back from the brink like hardly any individuals left in the world and now and now those populations are doing much better. Um, so I learned a lot. I met some wonderful people, including my now husband. And then I kind of came back to the UK and did some amazing uh field seasons with the RSPB kind of looking at birds again and and actually one of the great things i was involved with there was reintroduction projects i really enjoy reintroduction projects because unlike a lot of conservation which feels like it it can take a really long time <laughs> you know conservation you're in it for the long run whereas reintroductions you know you've you've got these animals and you're releasing them into the wild and if it goes well then you can actually see the rewards and really really quickly so I had this amazing contrast where I was in Mauritius and we were reintroducing these tiny, tiny little birds called olive white eyes. Very cute, highly recommend Googling them. They almost look like cartoons because just around their eyes, they've got this little ring of white feathers. So kind of got little googly eyes and they're really, really tiny. They're the same size as some of the smallest birds we have in the UK. And so we were hand rearing them, kind of feeding them food on using tweezers and things like that. Think absolutely tiny. And then I came back to the UK and within weeks, I was helping with a white-tailed eagle reintroduction in Scotland. So the scale was massively different. You know, these white-tailed eagles, their feet were about the same size as my hands. We were feeding them, well, feeding them like roadkill and and squirrels and things. So there were no tweezers involved. I was using litter pickers, in fact. (laughs) So, you know, the scale was entirely different. But it was equally fascinating and really amazing, especially the moment where after looking after these eagle chicks for a few weeks we opened the doors to the aviary and they just flew off they stretched their wings these birds had never flown before in fact they'd been they'd been taken from wild population in Norway where there was a surplus and then released in Scotland and they just flew for kilometers they just knew what to do and then obviously my job was to make sure they were okay in the wild and that was super exciting you know really rewarding really quite quick rewards for conservation And then, yeah, I worked for the RSPB um, for quite a few years on a project called Operation Turtle Dove. So turtle doves are one of the most threatened European birds. And that was really interesting because it was all about working together with other conservation partners, people all across Europe, and then into their wintering range in Africa as well. So we were working with partners in Senegal and Morocco, for example. And I found that really exciting, the kind of cultural differences, the need for people from these entirely different worlds to pull together for this small bird who had no idea that we were all working so hard for it and I found that a really fascinating experience kind of international conservation working Um, and yeah from there then like I said I started volunteering doing marine volunteering and kind of drifted back towards the marine environment and hence I'm with Marine Conservation Society now.
0: That is a lovely journey and I think I could listen to you speak all day which is wonderful (laughs) which is why why you're on a podcast. So you mentioned very early on in this um, chat that you are a seaweed convert so 10 years ago way less interested. (laughs) What made you a seaweed convert?
2: So I guess I just always thought the seaweed was the less interesting of the things I could see at the beach. (laughs) Um, I've always loved rock pools, like, I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, But I guess I would go to rock pools and kind of move the seaweed out of the way to see what was amongst them. And then it was really through volunteering, through kind of citizen science primarily, uh, Capturing Our Coast was the project I first got involved with, that I started to look at the seaweeds themselves and not just between them and through them and on their fronds and realised... They can be very beautiful, they're incredibly varied. Um, and I guess the thing that I think a lot of people overlook when it comes to seaweeds is if you're walking on the beach, typically you see your seaweeds kind of just very flat because obviously the sea's left them behind and they've just been kind of, they've just been left on the beach kind of two dimensional. Whereas when you snorkel over a seaweed, it's entirely different or dive or whatever. And, and I think for me, it was those experiences of snorkeling and, and swimming through and over seaweeds and realizing that really they're just those incredible three-dimensional environments and that you can start to notice all kind of life supported on them you know, whether it's like sea urchins or or kind of you can peer down and see fish kind of swimming between the fronds and if you're really lucky you can see things like seals. You know, it's I think just recognizing that slight shift in my mind that they're not these two dimensional environments. That's the only that's only when they're on the beach and when the tides left them behind. In fact they're these amazing three dimensional environments and there's so much going on amongst them. That's what got me really excited.
1: You've just painted the best picture of a just your change in excitement because i have definitely always been the person that goes to the beach i'm like look seaweed look seaweed, and people are (laughs) like i don't care (laughs) Like, please
2: it's great it's really
1: fun (laughs) um so just on that note because i guess for most people when they think about seaweed they think about this wet leathery thing Mm. possibly um some seaweeds do seem pretty delicate whereas some seem tougher could you give us a description of what seaweed is
2: yeah 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 definitely um So, I mean, yes, series are incredibly diverse. I don't think I'd fully appreciated how diverse until probably doing the role I'm doing now. I, I have a prop with me. Hannah will appreciate that I have a prop. So obviously some seaweeds are very leathery. Uh, Everyone will, I think a lot of people, if you ask them what seaweeds are like, they'll often describe them as maybe quite slimy. That's how we tend to see seaweeds. So if you ask a child to draw a seaweed, they'll probably draw a seaweed with these bladders, these bubbles on them. You know, that's kind of your typical seaweed. But there are so many other types as well. So they can, as you say, be incredibly delicate. They can be almost kind of Paper thin or thinner, and very kind of these incredible vibrant colours, beautiful reds and pinks. There can be these huge leather-like straps of seaweed. They can also be these beautiful pale pink. Um, hard seaweed so I have one of them with me whenever I'm teaching people about seaweeds they're always really surprised when I show them a particular seaweed which I have in my hand right now I found this on a beach um, up on the northwest of Scotland after a stormy weather the seaweed itself is called a merl. and um, A lot of people don't realize that you get these seaweeds that are very hard. They resemble corals. Corals, of course, are animals, whereas seaweed are entirely different. They're algae. But this does look like a coral. It's pale, pink, and very beautiful. And I'm just going to tap it. I'm going to tap it on my mug here, just so you can hear. Can you hear that? It's quite incredible, really. It's essentially just got like a skeleton, just like a coral. and That's also a seaweed. And we've got a lot of different seaweeds of entirely different textures. And they will feel different as well, depending on if they're living, if maybe they've been washed up on the beach. And if they've been lying in the sun for ages, they obviously can go very crispy and dry. But you also ask kind of what is a seaweed? So a seaweed is an algae, which is a word um, Hannah's already used. So plants and seaweeds both photosynthesize, so they're able to get energy from sunlight. But an algae, a seaweed, is different because it doesn't have the same structures as a plant. A plant will have flowers and leaves and roots, all the things we're familiar with, whereas an algae doesn't have those structures. It's got other things that do similar roles, but they allow it to be able to live in the ocean. There are some exceptions, of course, about plants who live in the ocean, but I think we'll come to those later.
0: So yeah, you've mentioned that we've got these seaweeds that are beautiful and amazing and completely different and changeable in their own rights. Can you tell me the difference between a seaweed and a seagrass?
2: Yes, absolutely. So... So obviously I mentioned that both plants and seaweeds photosynthesize. Um, Seagrass and seaweed are entirely different because seagrass is a plant. Now, I find this kind of mind-blowing because it means it's got all of the same structures of any plant that you know. Maybe you've got a plant kind of on your windowsill or whatever. So it's got got flowers, it's got leaves, it's got a stem, and it's got roots that will grow into into the sand, into the sediment in the sea. Now... Obviously, I am a biology geek, so I get more excited about this than maybe most people. But I think it's incredible for me when the penny dropped and I realized that seagrass has flowers, it's under the water. But of course, there aren't pollinators like bees and butterflies under the water. So there's tiny sea creatures like crustaceans that do the pollination for them, that actually move between these flowers. So very, very odd. I mean, seagrass in itself, you know, totally deserves its, its entire podcast um, but yeah just to mention incredibly briefly that you know seagrass sea certainly a vulnerable habitat there's lots of really important conservation work for it it's got a really really critical role in fixing and locking in carbon but that's seagrass seaweed like i say it's an entirely different beast really so it's an algae it doesn't have any of those structures so instead of roots that can burrow into the soil or into the sand it has something called a hold fast um I often describe this as kind of like a hand or something that can really grab on to the maybe a rock maybe it's a boulder or maybe it's the kind of rocky rocky floor of the sea so it, it does the same thing as a root it stops it from hopefully drifting around most seaweeds kind of like to be anchored to the floor and then instead of a stem it's got something called a stipe and instead of Instead of leaves, it's got it's got blades and fronds. So just a very a, a different a different beast, really uh, that does that has a has a different role uh, in the ecosystem.
1: Mm, you're painting some wonderful pictures, Tara. I'm adoring this episode already. <laughs> um, and you're right, seagrass does get its own episode hopefully awesome. as <laughs> but... i said
2: it i was like i'm sure they'll be doing an episode
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i'm excited to find out lots more about that but seaweed is what we're focusing on um so yeah i think my next question is just about you've talked about kind of the fronds and the fast and things like this but are there broad types or classifications or groups of seaweeds
2: yeah Definitely. So one of the first things when you're sort of starting to understand seaweeds, as with any kind of learning about anything in the natural world, you obviously have to kind of learn some generalisations. And when it comes to seaweed, you first have to look at it, look at the colours. So you get your green seaweeds. Uh, the, one of the things I love about seaweeds is, is, is the descriptions are pretty obvious as to what they mean so this is always really helpful when you're trying to learn something new so your green seaweeds are bright green in color they're kind of grassy green and that's because they contain the pigment chlorophyll just just like grass or you know the leaves of a tree for example Um, A lot of folk who are listening, maybe will be able to picture green seaweeds, they often occur quite high up on the seashore, Uh, you could find them kind of out on the sand and things like that, Um, and there's a really common one called a sea lettuce that a lot of people will have seen, and it it does, it just looks like lettuce growing on the sand, Um, so yeah and then you get brown seaweeds um they can be anything from like brownie colors to quite of an olivey green one example that this includes kind of all of the kelps and one example is kind of giant kelps um there's a really cool fact about these so they can grow up to 60 meters in length which i think is pretty amazing because that makes them like more than twice as long as a blue whale so famously wow. <laughs> the biggest animal that's ever lived um So yeah, pretty, pretty massive, massive seaweeds. And then you get these red seaweeds and they can be anything from pale pinks all the way to very deep kind of crimsons and even quite dark reds. So yeah, you get these broad green, brown and red seaweeds. and That's how they're split initially.
0: And generally, I imagine you know a little bit more about uk species of seaweed but generally in the uk where can we find seaweed is it all over our coastline no matter what the state of whether it's a pebble beach or rocky shore and then what about globally
2: yes and that's a really good question so um typically it's all about rocky shores seaweeds like i was describing because they because they don't have roots because they have these holdfasts that cling on to rocks they need to have rocks to cling on to makes sense right so they live on rocky shores typically where you've got bedrock but even where you've got big boulders that don't shift around too much you can have seaweeds living there and um, sometimes you go to the beach and you'll find a seaweed that's made poor life choices and clung onto a rock that's far too small and it's kind of drifted off um so yeah but typically you do find them on rocky shores um in terms of globally i think i'll probably have to pass on answering anything beyond uk and uk like seaweeds if that's okay <laughs>
0: That is hundred percent okay. You've mentioned poor life choices and I've just now become <laughs> that seaweed in myself, I think. Nice.
1: I, yeah, that proper tickled me. This <laughs> have a, a space seaweed.
2: <laughs> it's when you it's see one and you know life. when you know it was a baby, it was like, This is a great boulder, this is a big boulder, I like it. And then it grows up and it's like, ah. Oh. Poor idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just drifting here, there and everywhere.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because actually that's a really good point. Is there is there is some seaweeds that kind of just form these big mats Mm. in the sea and do just drift here, there and everywhere. And they can be really important hubs in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere for other animals that are drifting here, there and everywhere. Um, which is why seaweeds are so cool. (laughs) Um, so just thinking about, yeah, where we're finding them around the UK. We've spoken about kind of on the rocky shore and you said roughly where we find these green and brown and red algae's as we kind of head towards the deep sea do we keep finding all of those groups or does that change
2: yeah um Good question. That does change. So, as I said, because they photosynthesize just like plants, they need sunlight. So typically you actually you tend to find them as far as sunlight can easily penetrate. Um, so whilst you can find super deep sea seaweeds, kind of I think they've been recorded up to 295 meters deep in the Bahamas, that's pretty abnormal, you know. That's an exception. Mostly they like to be in the lighter zones. And as we know, if you're, if you're a keen swimmer or snorkeler around the UK, um, we don't necessarily have the water clarity of, of, of clearer, you know, clearer waters elsewhere. So that means that you'll tend to find them in shallower waters. Um, so yeah, the deep sea, you wouldn't typically find seaweeds. And then I mentioned you find the green seaweeds, things like sea lettuce, typically quite high on the seashore and then you find your brown seaweeds they quite like being submerged they they don't really like being dried out too much when the tide is out so you find them a bit deeper and then your red seaweeds they can be even deeper still that's really broad generalizations but they have different kind of pigments to be able to harvest the sunlight and and that can kind of allow them to live in different places maybe where it's a bit darker as well.
0: Thank you for that explanation I'm really getting into my mind a picture of like a cross section of a rocky shore (laughs) and what seaweeds I'm going to find and if nowhere near the coast at the moment but I I think this episode deserves a trip out um (laughs) so Tara how many different seaweeds UK based because that's what we're talking about now how many different seaweeds are there generally in the UK
2: That's a good question as well. Um, So there's about 650 species of seaweed in the UK. Um, That said, it's likely there are probably far more that just haven't been recorded yet. Uh, It's so often the case, which I'm sure has been mentioned in other podcasts, that often the should we say less charismatic species tend to maybe have just fewer people have studied them. So actually there's often a lot more to learn. So if anyone's listening and thinking, oh, I'd really like to make my mark on science and discover a new species, then maybe seaweeds would be a good way to go.
0: Yeah, and I think it's amazing the amount of things that we have yet to be discovered because knowing what you have to know what's there before you start Mm -hmm. to figure out how to conserve it. So there's still so much science yet to explore and so many things yet to discover that I think we take for granted sometimes.
1: Mm. I think that's such a great point there, Lex, about yeah, first you have to know what it is to then try and conserve it, to then understand what's happening to it. So yeah, it's there is so many places left untouched what you could look at. But we've talked about seaweed and being a convert, we have yet to ask you the most important question in my opinion, what's your favourite seaweed Tara?
2: (laughs) It's a great question. (laughs) So I kind of described this already but I'm going to give two answers because when I think about seaweeds I guess I think of two very different experiences so one of them is I I do absolutely love these kind of delicate pink seaweeds, the ones I've mentioned, things like merle or these coralline seaweeds that they look almost like pinky corals. And structurally, they're so beautiful. They're often quite miniature. Um, So, you you know, it's a real treat. You've got to spend the time looking in rock pools maybe uh, to be able to find them, these beautiful coralline pink seaweeds. And they've, yeah, just absolutely stunning little things, Uh, often with all kinds of other marine life nearby as well. But then I also, on the complete other end of the spectrum, I just love that experience of snorkeling over things like kelp forests. I talked a wee bit about how people think of seaweeds two-dimensionally, because that's often people's experience when they're on beaches. But it is when you're in the sea with the seaweeds that I think you really experience them. Obviously, as as they should be. I love that feeling of when you're swimming over kind of huge kelp fronds, reaching up, and, and you do just kind of get this sense of flying over a forest almost. Um, for me, when I'm learning about and thinking about seaweeds or teaching people about seaweeds, I quite like to maybe liken them to being in a forest because I think that really helps people to understand that you have you have your kind of understory. You almost have your mossy layer right at the bottom where you get a lot of kind of sea creatures who are stuck to the sea floor. And then all the way up the fronds of those big kelps, you'll find all kinds of life, just like if you're in a forest, you might find epiphytes, you might find things, things like orchids living way up in the branches, exactly the same for these big seaweeds. And then you'll find obviously these creatures that swim around amongst the blades of the seaweed, the kind of leaf-like structures. Um, so, yeah, I just find that absolutely mesmerising, just really absorbing. And it is just that sense of flying amongst seaweed, which is just amazing.
0: I want to swim through a kelp forest with you just so you can explain everything to me. You
2: should totally do just it. I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to
1: pause there. That is a huge thing for Lexi to say. Lexi does not like cold water. <laughs> and kelp forests are typically in cooler water. I have to add that. when you said earlier about Mauritius, Lex was like,
2: mm, uh-huh. yeah, sunshine. <laughs>
1: <find> <laughs> So that's a
2: huge <laughs>
1: this is gold where... star from Lex. Okay,
2: no, that's cool, that's cool. And uh, I mean, Scotland definitely has the edge in with respect to having impressive kelp forests, definitely not with respect to warm waters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's
0: got <laughs> highs and lows.
2: <laughs> as, a, as a slight aside, when I was a kid, um, until I was about 18, I'd only ever swum in the UK and I thought becoming numb was all part of the experience of swimming in <sighs> the sea oh, no. <laughs> and then in my 20s I went to Mauritius and realized that's not the case and I find it quite hard to get back into sea swimming back in the UK I was like oh <laughs> this is what people mean when they say you don't have to experience getting through the numbness barrier <laughs> but anyway that was a total aside but yes See, I, whereas, I do understand
0: if we're carrying on with the aside, I grew up in Spain Mm. so not this water is not it takes a lot for me to want to get into uk water learning to dive was one of those things but generally every time hannah's invited me to swim i'm Mm -hmm. like not today thank you it's icy outside yeah
1: middle of summer
0: honestly right Um. um so tara you've done such an amazing job at explaining what Your favourite seaweed is, and then the role that they have in our ecosystem, a little bit as to the habitats they provide for some of these creatures. Mm. But would you be able to go a little bit further into that question and explain some of the ecosystem services they provide?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, seaweeds, as I described, I think if you think about them as a forest, it really helps you to start to understand that they are absolutely integral for an ecosystem they support so much life it's kind of mind-blowing really I remember reading I'm afraid this is a rubbish statistic it's not even an attempt at a statistic I read a few years ago though when some of our kelp forests around Scotland were looking like they were under threat that an individual kelp can support hundreds and hundreds of other species and organisms. So when you scale that up and you think about a whole kelp forest, it's really quite incredible to re- realize all of the life and, and the important role those kelps provide in terms of that 3D structure for animals and plants and uh, you know, other algae to live amongst and in between. Um, so absolutely, I think as an ecosystem, they're just incredible, purely for their biodiversity, purely for their beauty. And I don't think that's a, a lesser reason to celebrate them. Um, but they also have a huge amount of other important roles. So, so for example, they, they help us as humans. So these, especially these kind of bigger seaweeds are helping to protect our land, our coasts from erosion and storm damage. Um, Not wanting to bring the tone down, but of course, climate change is a very real threat. We know that storms are more frequent, they're more severe, and also we know that sea levels are rising. So storm damage of coastal communities, loss of coastal communities under seawater is a genuine fear, um, perhaps more so in other countries around the world. Actually, kelp forests and other seaweeds can really help. They kind of buffer and they protect as these storms come in from the sea, as the big waves come in some of the energy of the waves is taken out by, by those seaweeds as the water moves through them. So they really are helping to protect and buffer our coastlines. They can also play quite an important role in capturing carbon. So again, kind of helping in that, in playing an important role as part of the carbon cycle, I guess, in, lo- in capturing carbon and to some extent storing carbon as well. So they, they have all kinds of different, different roles, I think, and benefits that, that we get from them.
1: Hmm. And just thinking on that, because I keep seeing like our ecosystem services is just my jam, Um, but I keep seeing all of these different conversations about alternatives and did you know seaweed was for this? Hey, seaweed's in your toothpaste and all of like these weird and wonderful things. Um, So yeah, could you give us an overview of what seaweed might be good for?
2: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So this is definitely something I found quite interesting uh, in the last few years was just discovering That seaweed kind of makes it into everyday use uh, for for us humans all of the time. Um, Just like you said, you know, the fact that it's in toothpaste, a lot of people don't realise. So everyone listening today has probably already used (laughs) seaweed without realising it. Um, It appears as alginate, which is something that's extracted from seaweed in all kinds of different things, kind of medicinal purposes, you know. And of course, some people will be aware, you know, some people will, will know that they've eaten seaweeds, um, so not even these kind of hidden seaweeds, but seaweeds in the form of maybe in kind of Japanese cuisine, you might have had nori uh, wrapped around sushi, for example. But I grew up in Wales, and I hadn't realised um, that actually it's the same seaweed, nori, that's used in lava bread, the kind of Welsh uh, traditional uh, cuisine, very different texture to the kind of <laughs> the drier, more crispy sushi wrapping. Um Lava bread is definitely much more, I would say, slimy in texture. But then, of course, we also have seaweed and all kinds of other things. So caragreen is a kind of vegetarian alternative to gelatin, for example. So seaweeds appear a lot in our food as well, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not. And they have loads of health benefits. They're full (laughs) of vitamins and minerals and polyunsaturated fatty acids and yeah they can be used as fertilizer for a long time seaweeds have been kind of harvested by coastal farming communities kind of taken from the beaches and put on the land as fertilizer as well so I mean a huge amount of very varied uses and again I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that
0: I think it's so so interesting the uses that you can find for seaweed when you start looking like even just then as you were mentioning nori which I mean I love sushi, but I'm a, I'm a v- vegetarian. But I now use nori sheets to make my vegan tuna taste fishier. So you can even come up with some uses.
2: That is a good tip. So, that is cute. <laughs> it,
0: honestly, I'll send you the recipe, it's fab. Right. Tara, in terms of seaweeds, you've mentioned already that you got into it through doing a volunteer project. Was it co-coast? mm mm-hmm. um, In terms of engagement, is that something that people can still do or can you point us to any other projects that people can get involved with?
2: So yes, um, so I'm a big believer in citizen or community science so that's the kind of science that anyone can get involved with and contribute to increasing our knowledge about often where species are, um, what species are there, that kind of thing. So Citizen science is definitely something that folk can still get involved with. Uh, The project I originally got involved with, Capturing Our Coast or Co-Coast, has sadly paused for the time being. But the one that I'd like to talk about today is called The Big Seaweed Search. And that's something that people can absolutely get involved with. Um, So it's done in partnership between Marine Conservation Society and the Natural History Museum in London. Um, And it really is something that anyone can do. Um, It's a really great thing for... I guess folk, folk who were like myself, who maybe always loved the sea and felt they'd like to learn a bit more, um, but you absolutely don't need any kind of official science background or training. I think it's very, very accessible, um, easy to learn, and we've got some helpful resources to help people to do that. It's also a really nice thing to do kind of as a family activity as well, so that you know everyone can get involved in rock pooling, but you can actually learn something and contribute to science at the same time.
1: So, if you had to paint a picture of what the big seaweed search is, I mean, I guess the question to start with be, how did it start?
2: Yeah. Okay. So, there's uh, um, one of the one of the world's leading um, seaweed scientists, uh, Dr. Juliet Brodie, is based at the Natural History Museum in London, um, and basically she realised that. There aren't there aren't there aren't enough seaweed scientists for us to properly monitor and understand what's going on with seaweeds all around the UK, um, and so there's a great opportunity for citizen science to get people, lots of people involved on their local coastlines or maybe when they're on holiday, to look at look at their coastlines, look at what seaweeds are there. Not all of them. You know, I've already said there are 650 species. We don't expect folk to be able to recognise that many. But 14 species are really relatively easy to learn and to remember and recognise. Um, and essentially letting us know what they find when they go to the beach. It is in a nutshell as simple as that. Um, There's some really kind of simple ID help available, kind of uh, useful leaflets, little videos and things to help people get into it. Um, And the reason we wanted to know what's there is partly what you were saying earlier. If you don't know what's there, you obviously can't protect it. But also because largely due to climate change, we're seeing changes in seaweeds. Um, People like Juliette Brody at the Natural History Museum have sort of anecdotally have been seeing that Seaweeds are shifting their distribution. So with warming seas, we're seeing these big brown seaweeds, things like the kelps I've talked about, shifting further north. They don't really like these warming temperatures. We're also seeing, as as well as changes in seaweeds, kind of where they are, we're seeing new seaweeds coming in. So invasive non-native seaweeds that have arrived here accidentally. Um, Things like... um, Wireweed that arrived originally, kind of on the hulls of ships, and are very quickly and quite alarmingly kind of spreading their way around the coast, and and we're not really entirely sure about the impact um, on local seaweeds, on 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 the other kind of uh, species that live there, but they're undoubtedly kind of taking a hold far faster than humans might be able to manage that. And then the other strand is also related to climate change. And that's about these lovely pink seaweeds I was mentioning, the ones with often with like a hard skeleton. And those ones are particularly vulnerable to ocean acidification. So another one of these impacts of climate change where seawater is becoming slightly more acidic, not as much as you or I could feel, but concerningly so if you happen to have a calcium carbonate skeleton, so like a chalk skeleton, which is what these seaweeds have it's also the same as what like a crab or a lobster or lots of shells for example if you're sort of thinking what kind of animals have this a lot of animals have this skeleton as well but the seaweeds um you can look for them and often if they're looking quite unhealthy these particular pink seaweeds uh, that can be a sign of of damage through maybe ocean acidification so there's a, basically a range of species 14 species that represent some of those different ones i've just mentioned and that's what we ask people to look for
0: so people go out. They go to the beach, potentially with their family, have a fabulous day, take some notes of what seaweed they find. What then happens with that data?
2: Yeah. So maybe I should describe in a wee bit, a wee bit more structured than I just did as to, as to what the survey involves. Is that okay? Yes. Just- yeah. Go for it. So, so yeah, the big seaweed search really just involves heading to the beach. It's well worth looking at the tide times before you go, because obviously you're only going to be able to see your seaweeds without getting wet if you go on the low tide. Um, for kind of safety reasons, I would always say try and go when the tide is dropping. You don't really want the tide kind of coming in behind you whilst you're engrossed in a rock pool or looking at seaweeds. Um, so then with a pal, with your family, head down to the bottom of the shore and you've got a list of these 14 seaweeds. You can just download this off our website. And you just basically walk up from the bottom of the shore where the sea's just behind you, all the way to the top of the beach. And you just say whether those seaweeds are present or absent and whether there's lots of them or not many. And then when you get home, um, you upload that to the website. And at that point, the data is all sent to the Natural History Museum in London, and they're able to then look at maybe trends in distribution, often because there just isn't much known about seaweeds. You know, if you've gone to your beach, it might be the first time anyone's really looked at what was there. So the seaweeds you've seen might be the first time we've got records for those seaweeds. Even if they're not particularly rare seaweeds, it's still really valuable to be able to find out what's there or what's not there. And... Um, and at that point, obviously, with more and more information coming through, we can start to look for changes and trends, and maybe recognise where, where we're having new seaweeds coming in. We're having um, certain of the seaweeds are, are maybe leaving particular locations, and that could be a sign of climate change, for example, as well.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, where where that information is going and. Is there any kind of publications that's come out of the Big Seaweed Search just yet? Or kind of is there a hub that people can go to to see the data summarised, maybe?
2: There are a few publications already, and there are certainly more publications in the pipeline. So folk can see where their data are contributing to. If you submit data, uh, you can now see other people's data as well. So you can kind of get an understanding of how your particular beach, your shoreline, maybe compares to other people's. But really what we need is kind of more data, more people getting involved, so we can start to recognize maybe trends and patterns. And and as with any sort of um, science project like this, we will always want more data, but more years of data will be incredibly useful. So we can start to recognize some of those patterns.
0: Because we've mentioned a lot about the Natural History yeah. Museum. Um, which is fabulous that the data gets sent there and a lot gets processed. But what does the Marine Conservation Society do with the big seaweed search?
2: So our role in Marine Conservation Society is we work with a lot, a lot of volunteers. Our volunteer network are called Sea Champions. They're just these amazing, committed people all across the UK who are doing all kinds of incredible things to help the sea, from beach cleans to, you know, talking to politicians and everything in between. And um, our involvement really is working with our volunteers, supporting our volunteers to get involved with this project, Um, as well as, you know, kind of, Uh, helping to get other people involved you know some of the sea champions who I work with are really passionate about seaweeds and support other people in their local communities to get involved as well so you can kind of have that ripple effect where you know one individual's passion can kind of build and grow so really that's our involvement is much more the kind of connecting with communities and with volunteers Um, so, yes, this month, uh, at the end of July, we've got our first ever big seaweed search week where, so from the 26th of July to the 1st um, of August, we'll be having a big kind of celebration of seaweed and really encouraging as many folk as possible to get involved. That's quite a good week for the tides. So, like I mentioned, to be able to see seaweeds, ideally, you need quite big tides. So it, the, the tide tides, times are good and they're nice big tides so folk can get to the beach and hopefully enjoy it enjoy a day at the beach with friends with family and do a bit of seaweed surveying um, whilst they're there um we'll be hopefully helping people to learn a bit more about seaweed during that week so putting out some information um having you know opportunities for folks to ask an expert that sort of thing um and hopefully just yeah encouraging folk to really kind of celebrate what's on their beaches
1: that's super exciting especially with it being the first one so everyone I hope you're putting those dates in your diary. I know I will be keeping an eye on the MCS um, Twitter and Instagram, which links are in the show notes, guys. And yeah, I think oh, you've painted some beautiful pictures throughout this whole episode. Um, and we are getting towards the end now. But one of the things I kind of maybe want to touch on is how could we protect seaweed? So what could we do to protect all of this glorious seaweed that's all around the British coastline?
2: So. I guess this comes back to you can't protect things if you don't know they're there. So I think that's where the big seaweed search is really helpful because it's a great way for absolutely anybody just to get a bit involved, learn something, but also contribute to that science, uh, to understand what seaweeds are living on their coastlines, to maybe start to recognise how that seaweed um is changing over time. We know, for example, with the with big storms, we often get seaweeds kind of really being just torn off the sea floor, And it can take a while for them to recover. We'd like to understand more about things like that. There are also a lot of, you know, very rare seaweeds that folk might be able to spot around the UK that we'd like to have a bit of a focus on in this project. And, you know, if people have tried the the big seaweed search and would like to do something a bit more, then that's something we'd like to invite folk to get involved with as well. Um, Just so that we can really understand what's there. And and that's really the first step to understanding how to protect it as well.
0: I think that's a lovely note. And I think talking about this type of engagement and this type of project that's actually going on this summer, that if you've got an interest in the sea, if you've got an interest in learning more about conservation, if you just want to try something new, if you get dragged along by a mate that's sea obsessed, mm-hmm. just like, just go for it. Absolutely enjoy the day and make the most of it and you might ignite a new passion. I mean, Tara didn't care about seaweed 10 years ago. Now now she's like part of a massive project. Just see where your life takes you. I think that's what Hannah and I have learned from this podcast. And what we've been up to recently is just don't say no too quickly. Try and take some opportunities on board if you can. Um, so one of my last questions for you, I think, Tara, if people want to know more about seaweed, obviously they're going to get involved in this um, big sea research. That's step one. But what would step two be?
2: I guess I guess it's all kind of involved, connected to each other. But just next time you go to the beach, especially if it's a rocky shore, or quite often sandy beaches will have you know some big boulders. They'll have some rocky areas or rock pools. Just take a look. Take the time to to go and yeah, to get closer to it. To to li- to to lift up different fronds of seaweed and have a look at those structures. Um, it's actually amazing when. I think I described at the start a lot of children if you ask them to draw a seaweed or describe a seaweed they'll describe those seaweeds with the big air bladders um But there are loads of different shapes and structures as well. Um, One of my favorites I didn't even mention earlier, there's a seaweed called thongweed. And when it's just starting out life, it's got these cute little, almost mushroom-like structures that grow directly from the rock. I always think of them as like Shrek's ears. Um, (laughs) Seaweeds aren't typically cute, but actually if you see these tiny little Shrek ear, mushroom-like structures growing out of a rock, I defy anyone to say that's not a cute seaweed. And honestly, that's kind of how I got started, you know, just starting to notice those details and starting to realize that there's all of these different shapes and structures. And then you've got some rather cool, really interesting life amongst them as well. So, yeah, I would just encourage you. And whilst the big sea research is, you know, 14 species, what I always find when you're learning about anything new to do with the natural world is... Once you learn a little bit, it's much easier to learn a little bit more and kind of it opens your eyes and you start to realise the diversity and, and how much just, you know, fascinating stuff there is out there. So I would hope, I really hope that some folk listening to this might start on that journey and then learn a little bit more.
1: Um, yeah, I think that that is a wonderful note to be ending this podcast on of going out exploring just having a look because yeah I have one of those it's troll hair seaweed Mm -hmm. can never tell you the scientific name cannot remember I just know it's troll hair and then I have to get it and look in a book but yeah so people ask me and I'm like "Uh, it's troll hair (laughs) (laughs) I know what it is it's that one um but yeah thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest Tara and I think that's about us so thank you for chatting to us to everyone for listening to us and have a wild day
2: thanks so much guys bye
1: Bye. thank you for listening today as always
0: we have been wild about conservation and you have been awesome please do leave us a review
1: we would really appreciate it and we do read them all to keep exploring with us drop us an email or find us on our socials all the links are in our description and the show notes if you enjoy our show and want to support us we are also on patreon just one pound a month 25p an episode will cover our creation costs And anything above that, we donate to charity. Thank you to those of you that are already helping us to keep creating.
0: Our chosen charity for this season are the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, who are an organisation dedicated to the rescue and well-being of all marine animals in distress around the UK. Donations will go to training teams of volunteers and maintaining specialised equipment
1: that is vital for their work.
0: Don't forget to look
1: out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, do let us know. And
0: remember step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye! Bye.
1: How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries, wildflower painting, diving, wild swimming, ocean watching, rock climbing, bird watching, listening to podcasts,
0: hill walks, visiting a wildlife charity.